We're going to get into the Word here this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Just going to speak to you briefly here this morning. Uh, along the lines of what we've already been talking about for the past few weeks since, um, well, since Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. And I want you to hear this, even if you've heard it a hundred times before. That's the power of the Word of God. The power of the Word of God is it's not about hearing something you've never heard. It's about seeds being planted in your heart that will bear fruit. And about it waking things up and creating things in us. The Word of God is creative. It creates things in us. So if you'll allow it, even if you know these scriptures inside and out, it'll change your heart. You know, here's the thing. Jesus, there were things he said that were completely new. And completely revolutionary when he said them. There were other things he said that had been said for hundreds of, or even thousands of years. And yet he said it. And, the, and it says the people marveled because he spoke with authority, not like their scribes. Now he was teaching from the same, same material they were teaching from, but there was authority to it. The people didn't marvel that he was saying a bunch of new things. He did say new things, but much of his teaching was just proclaiming what they already knew but hadn't received. There were new things, but he said, a wise scribe brings from his treasure chest things new and things old. And so those old and new came together, but somehow they had a different life when Jesus spoke them. And so today, you know, uh, Jesus said there would be many that went away and didn't receive anything. Nothing grew. Nothing was planted in them. And he doesn't say it's because I preached bad. He said it's because their hearts didn't receive it. And so when I get in a place like this and, and, and somebody's preaching to me or somebody's reading from the word of God, I say I don't care how many times I've heard it. I want it to sink in and change me. I want it to, to hit me. And, and, you know, if somebody came up here and just preached John 3.16, I want to hear that like I've never heard it before. I want it to change me. So we're going to go back um, to Paul's letters to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We talked about this um, on Resurrection Sunday. We talked about it on Good Friday if you were at that service. Uh, but we want to talk about it again. I want to see it from a different angle. Because Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, we talked about it from the angle of God wanting to be reconciled to you. And that's important. But now I want you to see it from the other side, which is us as ministers of reconciliation. For some of you, this is a very well-known concept. I may not say a thing today that you haven't heard. But I believe that the Spirit of God is waking us up to share His heart and to be affected by the things that affect him. I want to react to the world like Jesus reacts to the world. I don't want to react to the world like I react to it and then say, was I right? I want to feel what he feels. I want to, I want to like what he likes. I want to hate what he hates. I want to love who he loves. And he loves the world enough to die for it. That's the way I want to feel. So we want to go to 2 Corinthians 5. And I want you to see this. And we've been kind of hit, hitting this note for about three weeks here. And I, you know, sometimes when God keeps hitting on a, a note, 
then we pay attention and we, we let that sink in and, and we let him speak to us. So today I encourage you, let God speak to you. Beyond what I'm saying, let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says in verse 13, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Just think about that statement. The love of Christ controls us. What does that mean? Because certainly the love of Christ, part of that we understand that God loves us, right? But when he says the love of Christ controls us, he's not necessarily talking about how much God loves him, although he knows that. He's talking about how much Jesus loves you. Because Jesus loves you so greatly, I'm controlled by the love he has for you. I feel the love he has for you. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. His love for you is controlling me. His love for the world is compelling me. His love is causing me to preach in places where they'll beat me to preach it. His love is causing me to preach in places where the mobs will try to drag me to my death because that's how much Jesus loves you. What does it take to be at that point where you are an instrument of the love of God to the degree that it costs you something? Great. Apostle Paul said many times, you might think this has cost me great, and I'll tell you, compared to everything else, yeah, I've been through a lot, but I can't compare it to the glory that awaits me. And it is so light and temporary compared to the eternal weight of glory. There was something he understood that the temporary stuff he went to, in one place he's, he talks about all the junk he had to go through, all the times they almost killed him, all the times that he got beat up, all the times he got put in prison, all the times that, that, that he almost drowned. And he says, but these things, I mean, on top of all th- these things, I've got the concern for you, the church. I would have thought, Paul, let that go. Man, you're going through enough drama in your life. There's enough weird stuff going down. You, you know, you don't need to worry about other people. Just you, you worry about you. You're the one that's going through all this. But he says, beyond all that little stuff, I'm thinking about you. And that, that means that he's tapped in to the love of Jesus for them. So he says, we're controlled by it. And sometimes we seem crazy. If we seem crazy, it's for God. If we somehow control ourselves enough to seem like we've got a sound mind, it's for your benefit. Have you ever felt that way before? You felt like, man, I'll tell you, when it's just me and Jesus, I'm crazy. If I seem like I'm sane, it's for your benefit so that you'll listen to me and not throw me out of your house. There's plenty of times I feel like that up here, you know, where we just, sure, I'm sure we look crazy to, to people and, and that's okay. But uh, he says, if we're of sound mind, it's for you. But he says, the love of Christ controls us. And here's why it controls us. Because we came to the conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Isn't that wonderful? He died for you so you wouldn't have to live for yourself anymore. I used to read this like it was a like it was saying, get over yourself. And, and in some ways it is. But some of you have heard me say this before. I, I, I all of a sudden saw it as something liberating. Who has to look out for number one all the time? 
Who has to, you know, let's talk about kids for a minute, all right? My son, Moses, your kids, I, I, I'm just saying Moses because this is my reality, so you insert your own reality. But, you know, with our kids, they don't wake up every morning, I hope they don't, they don't wake up every morning scared that they won't get fed. They don't wake up every morning worried that if they don't do, if they don't work hard, that their house is going to go away or, or that uh, they're going to, you know, they're going to lose everything. They don't wake up with that fear because they trust you, right? So who has to look out for number one? It's the orphan, which is why in the scripture, God has such a heart for orphans. He says, I'm the father to the fatherless. He commanded kings and those with power and those with wealth to make their priority the orphans and the widows, those who couldn't provide for themselves. But let's be honest here. When we used to live for ourselves, we did it because we thought no one else would. We had to live for ourselves. Who else will? If you don't live for you, no one else will. And you'll be, you'll be the sucker stop, you know, stuck at the bottom of the pile. Life will just beat you up. You got to stick up, stand up for number one. You got to fight for yourself. But here's the deal. When Jesus died for us, we no longer had to live for ourselves because he died for us. He took our shame, our guilt, our burdens, our weight. He took it upon himself. He says, now you don't have to live for you anymore. Now you can live for me. And I used to think that was a work requirement. That, that was like, oh, Jesus says, uh, for the rest of my life, I don't get to live for me. He's saying, you don't have to live for you anymore. You live for me now. And that was echoed when Jesus told them, he said, you know, don't worry about this stuff. I'll take care of this stuff. You seek my kingdom. You seek my righteousness. I'll take care of the other stuff. And he says here, he says in verse 16, therefore from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. What does that mean? That means we don't judge people based on their background, their class, their income, their skill set, their, the things they, they came into the kingdom with. If I don't recognize you according to the flesh, I'm not judging you by your education. I'm not judging you by your, your background. I'm not judging you by what I think you have as far as skills or talents. I'm judging you by what God is doing in your heart. He says, we don't recognize anyone according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these new things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We've talked about this before, but allow me just to re, you know, re-say it, um, just to go over it again. But isn't that a powerful thought that God's mission throughout all of history was leading up to this point? Everything God wanted. Why did God create people in the first place? We we're going to cause them so much trouble. Right? Why would God create us? Created you because he loved you. Even before you were created, he loved you. He created you to have relationship with you. That's why we're different than any other animal on the planet. You know, God loves the pigs. He loves them. He created them. But God doesn't say, come pig, let's fellowship for a while. Walk with me in the cool of the garden. <laughs> Jesus didn't cast those demons into the pigs and then say, no, no, pigs, come back. I'll cast them out of you too. Wait. 
You know, he didn't go and ride on the colt and try to get the colt saved as he's riding down the, the highway. He came for us. We were the only ones created in his image. We were the only ones that he breathed his spirit into. He gave life to everything. But we were the only ones that had his spirit within us. And all of history is the story of God winning us back after we messed up. And it led us to the point of Jesus on the cross. And he nails it here. He says, God was in Christ. At that moment, God was there. At that moment on the cross, God was there reconciling the world to himself. It says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy set before Jesus on that day when he walked towards the cross, the joy was you being reconciled to God. That was his joy. That was his reward. That was his glory. Was you. And so God was in Christ bringing the world back. It, would, it should have been our job to come back to him, but we couldn't. We couldn't bridge that gap. It was a debt, as the old songs say, we owed a debt we could not pay. He paid that. We couldn't possibly do it. So God was in Christ reconciling, interceding for us, dying the death we should have died so that we could be brought back to God because that's what life is about, is being with him. He is everything good. He is everything lovely. Everything good on the planet is from him. And everything messed up, and I've said this so many times, but everything that's broken, everything that's messed up was a result of us being separated. Even the things that aren't your fault. It's not your fault every time, every bad thing that happens. Sometimes it is my fault. But some things just happen because we live in a broken world. It's a broken world that's still suffering under the weight of the curse. But that curse is on the planet because mankind rebelled against God. And yet God was the one who said, but I want you back. I want you back. I want you. Now, you couldn't possibly want me. Yes, I do. No, 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 no. You must mean somebody else, somebody better than me. And he says, no, you, I want you. And here's what I've done to get you back. I've given everything. I've died. I've, I've suffered and I've risen again. Come back. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And then he says he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. No matter what your giftings might be, no matter what you think the purpose in your life is, it all comes back to this. God wants people back. God wants hearts back. God wants his people that he created. He wants them saved from from death. He wants them rescued. He wants them back to his heart. And we get to be part of his plan to get it done. How could we be ministers of reconciliation if we didn't share his heart in the matter? If we didn't want the same things he wanted, it would be very difficult. Because, you know, sometimes you think about Jonah. I mean, if you've studied history, I know I've used this analogy before, so please forgive me for reusing it, but the Assyrians really made the Nazis look like nice people. (laughs) Made them look like Girl Scouts. Made them look like, like... you know, the Shriners or something. The Assyrians were terrible people, cruel. I mean, (laughs) if you went to our prime minister's office, you can't go to his house, his house is condemned right now. (laughs) Oh, Canada. (laughs) But if you go to his office, 
And you were waiting in the lobby, and you'd look at all the beautiful things. And, you know, if you were to go to the House of Commons, if you go to the Parliament buildings, there's beautiful, there's scriptures engraved on the stone. There's, there's paintings of great moments in Canadian history. But if you were to sit in the lobby waiting for the king of Assyria, do you know what you'd see? Pictures of all the horrible things that were done to the people that rebelled. Because how do we know that? Because that's what we archaeologists have found. That's what's left of the Assyrian Empire. Is king saying, great am I. Look, I'm the king of kings. I've conquered all these kingdoms. And look what I did to that one governor that disobeyed me. And there's pictures of people being skinned alive. And there's pictures of people being walled up in a wall and just allowed to die, just stuck in a wall. There have been pictures of whole villages dropped off in the middle of the desert without any water. Let them die out there. That's what the Assyrians, that was their way of bragging. Can you imagine somebody running for office right now that they got up and said, listen, here's why you should elect me. Look at all the horrible things I've done to people. I think my record speaks for itself. (laughs) But you might say some of those people are running right now. I don't know, depending on your political views. We got all sorts here today, so let's keep them inside for right now. (laughs) Because this is a house of the Lord, all right? But you can imagine, I mean, that that was what the Assyrians were like. And Jonah probably knew people that had been taken away. Jonah probably knew people that had been tortured. Jonah probably knew people that had been treated terribly. The Assyrians worshipped a fish god. And you see that that same sort of god pop up amongst the Philistines as well. The Assyrians worshipped a fish god. And so the way they honored their god is when they took prisoners away, they put fish hooks in their mouth and lead them away with fish hooks. Later in the Bible, God says, listen, I'm going to lead you with fish hooks. But before that, he sends Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. He says, I want you to go there and I want you to tell them to repent. Jonah, of course, tries to go the other way. And you would too, probably. Nobody wants to go there. God says, tell them to repent. So Jonah does. He says, tell them if if they don't repent, I'll destroy them in this many days. Jonah says, absolutely, okay. He doesn't say absolutely right away. It takes a, a bit of a detour, as you know. He ends up smelling like fish, which turns out to be a good thing amongst people that worship a fish god. He goes, he preaches, and then he sets up on a perch on top of a hill, a cliff overlooking Assyria, and he waits. I've done my part, God, now your part. Finally, roast these people. (laughs) Destroy them. Smite them. God... I'm going to leave it up to you whether you do it quick and awesome or slow and painful, but I want to see it. Can you imagine the kind of hatred you might have for you to not just say God will destroy you, but for you to find a prime viewing location to see it happen? (laughs) And then the unthinkable happens. The Assyrians repent. These terrible people repented. They knew they were supposed to fast. They didn't know how to fast. So they, they just went all out. They made their babies fast. They made their cattle fast. I think that was overkill, but they did it. And God spared them. And Jonah, do you remember what he said? He said, God, you spared these people. And he said, I wish you'd kill me. Just kill me. Can you imagine hating somebody so much that when God doesn't kill them, you, you say, I just want to die. The only thing I had to live for was watching them suffer. They're, that's gone. Just kill me now. I can't live in the same world as they live. And God, through all of that, 
gave him a plant that gave him shade. And when the plant died, Jonah was upset at God. You're playing games with me, God. That was my only shade. I miss that plant. He was mourning the loss of that plant. And God said to Jonah, he says, you're sad that a plant died. How do you think I feel about those people down there? Which so messes with our head because we kind of view God as if he had a personality change when Jesus came. Like in the Old Testament, he was a psychopath, and then he got real nice in the New Testament. But God has always loved his creation. Even when we brought on ourselves judgment and wrath and destruction, he did not stop loving people. In fact, in Ezekiel, he says this. He says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Well, God, what do you mean you don't take pleasure? I mean, because you see that in the Old Testament. So many of them are like, I can't wait when God whips upon the wicked. You know, at David at one point was so ticked off. He said, blessed are they that bash their babies' heads against the rocks. That's how ticked off he was. We don't have a lot of songs based on that psalm. <laughs> Not in this church. <laughs> And yet God says, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. I love them. How could God love the Assyrians so much? And he says to Jonah, you're sad that a plant died, but you're not sad that people were about to die. What's he doing? He's recalibrating Jonah's heart. See, it's not enough that we just obey God. God wants our heart to match with his. God wants your obedience, but he wants your heart. All right? So you can go out today and win people to Jesus because that's what you're supposed to do. But God would much rather you love them like he loves them. They're not a stat. They're not a number that we brag about at the end of the month. They are people that he died for. I don't mind numbers. We come back from a mission trip, we'll say this many people gave their heart to Jesus, but it's not the numbers that make, I mean, the numbers represent people, so God loves them. But those people aren't a stat to us. They're not numbers. They are each individual one, somebody that Jesus loved enough to give his life for. That's how he views you. But it's more than that. That's how he wants us to view the world. The love of Christ controls me. I am controlled by it. You imagine, I said this on Wednesday night. So for those of you that were there, bear with me as I say it again. But you can imagine the Apostle Paul on that road when he finally figures out who Jesus is. And Jesus says something to him. He doesn't just say you're going to minister to your own people. He says you're going to minister to the Gentiles. And one of the great revelations that's brought through the Apostle Paul is that the gospel was not just for the Jews. It was for all nations. That's a great revelation, isn't it? Until it dawns on him that that means right now there are people in Rome, there are people in Asia Minor, there are people in Spain that are dying without knowing the gospel. So we talked about that on Wednesday night, how he says, I'll do anything. I'll become anything to anyone so that I could by all means just save some. He says, I've done all things. I've done everything for the sake of the gospel that I can win more. That guy is urgent. All of a sudden he's realizing every moment, and he says this in the same letter. He says this, how can they believe if they've never heard? How can they hear if there's not a preacher How can he preach if he's not sent? Here's the point. He's he's understanding the longer I just stay and don't go, people are dying. So he says, I'm going to go. I'm going to go at all times. He says, woe is me if I don't preach. I've got to preach. 
Now that, that came from him feeling what Jesus felt for those people. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I want you to see this, that God wants Lloyd Minster back. God wants Onion Lake back. God wants Macklin back. God wants Maidstone back. God wants Neilberg back. God wants these Paradise Valley. God wants them back. And I want to want them as much as he wants them. Because I was given his ministry. And God doesn't give you a ministry without attaching his heart to it. It is God who is at work within us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Here's the point. God doesn't ever just call you something to do it just out of duty, although duty is a good thing. He doesn't just call you to do it because it needs to be done. He wants you to feel what he feels when you do it. God is at work within you to feel and to want what he wants. And he says this, he's committed to us. Well, namely that God, here's the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. What is the word of reconciliation? This isn't Sesame Street. There's not just like one word. The word in this sense means the message. What's the message of reconciliation? It's the gospel. You've been given the gospel. What's the gospel? God wants you back, and here's what he did to get it done. And all you have to do is by faith receive it. Give your life to him. Make him the Lord of your life. Here is an open invitation. God died. He sent his son to die for you that you would be reconciled to him. Therefore, be reconciled to God. And here's what it says in verse 20. He says this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you. Paul, you're a dignified man. People respect a dignified man. You're a man with education. You're a man with authority. Don't, don't, get you, don't lower yourself to the point of begging. But that's how much he cares. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. I said this before. Do you know that every time you speak, every time you sit down with someone, Talk to them about the gospel. God desires to make his appeal through you. And I've used this analogy before, but I, it fits best for me at least. If I were to sit across the table at a coffee shop and try to convince somebody, please, you, you don't know what you're missing. There'd be a limited effect. But imagine if Jesus Christ himself came down and said, I'm taking your coworker out to dinner? What if they said, I'm taking your child out to dinner? What if they said, I'm taking your, your father, your mother, your spouse out to dinner and I'm gonna make my appeal because that's how much I love them? Do you think that he'd be successful? You'd hope so. Even though when Jesus spoke, some people still turned away. Jesus never forces a heart. But you know that that appeal would be so powerful. God wants to make that appeal. 
every time you speak. He wants to make his appeal. So that love that God has for humanity is showing up in Paul. It's bleeding through to his life. It's leaking into his speech. And he says, I beg you on behalf of Christ. What's he saying? Christ is begging you to be reconciled. That's even hard for me to say right now because I know that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. He is high and lifted up. I know that every knee will bow before him. So I, I, I am almost offended at the thought that he would beg. Jesus, you don't need to beg. That's how much he loves. Of course he doesn't need to. Of course he could come and force us all to do what he wanted. Of course he could come with a sword and, 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 and make us believe and make us obey. And yet he says, I beg you on behalf of Christ, which tells me if it's on behalf of Christ, that's what Christ is doing. He's pleading with you. Be reconciled. Now with that heart for our city. I want us all to have that heart for our city. The Lord's been more and more um, stirring me to intercession. And I've been digging back into intercession throughout the Bible. Back to the, the prophets and the leaders of old, when the people would sin and they would rebel against God and people like Moses would go and say, God, spare them. People like Samuel, Samuel says this to him. He says, the people look and say, God, we shouldn't have chosen a king. We made a mistake. And Samuel says, all right, here's the deal. Turn back to God, repent. And then he says, far be it from me that I would sin against God by not praying for you. Samuel understood that it was a sin against God if he didn't pray for his people. Have you ever considered that we're sinning against God if we're not praying for our city? I'm not trying to guilt you into doing it. I'm trying to encourage you into doing it. There are people that God puts on your heart and says intercede. To intercede means to stand in the gap for them, to, to, to bridge that gap between them and God. And you say, but I can't bridge that gap. There's only one person that can bridge that gap, and that's Jesus Christ. But by prayer, we are bringing them before the Father, and we're saying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, touch their heart. If my people, he says, would pray. It doesn't say if all the unbelievers would pray. It says if my people would pray and humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways, then I would hear from heaven and I would heal their land. That's old covenant. But thank God his promises remain that he would do this for us. So if we pray, if we pray, if we act with the same heart that Jesus has for Lloyd Minster, for Macklin, for Onion Lake, for Neilberg, for Paradise Valley, for Maidstone, we would have that heart he'd meet you right there and you make your appeal he'd make his appeal through you I talked to you about Sunday night how God really worked in that service and you know God does it differently in different places in different ways but today I, I want us to have the heart for Lloyd or for whatever city or community you're from Far be it for us, from us, that we would sin against God and not pray for our people. We want them to be reconciled because God wants them reconciled. Peter says this. He says, in the last days, there'll be those that say, God, why do you guys keep talking about Jesus coming back? He says, there'll be scoffers that say, people have always said Jesus was coming back and he still hasn't come back. 
And Peter says, you think he's slow, but he's not slow, he's patient. So the reason Jesus hasn't come back is because he desires that people be saved. In fact, it says he desires that all men be saved and come to repentance. We know, the Bible tells us, at the end of the, end of the day, there will be those that never t- turn to him. But his desire is that we all would, none would perish. That none would perish. That's his desire. And I know some of you are saying, well, what do you mean? Does God not always get his way? And I'm going to tell you this. He is God, and yet he has given you free will. So he gave you the choice to choose. He gave you the opportunity to disobey or to obey. He says, I set before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life. That's the choice. And yet the reason Jesus has not returned to this day is because he's patient. He's waiting because he wants more people to be saved from death. That's how much he loves them. I want to love him with the same love. I want that same urgency in me that Paul had. How can I not preach? How can I not? Now that I know. Now that I know the gospel is for everybody, how could I not preach? How could I not spend my life on this? How could I do anything else? Let's stand up.